We are in our third week of our series in Advent here at the church, and we are going through some of the common themes that surround this time of year. Advent means the arrival, and we obviously are celebrating the arrival of Jesus coming to this world, but when Jesus came, it's not just the coming of Christ, it is the coming of God with us, and as Jesus comes, he brings with him all these wonderful things that are associated with his nature, his character. And so we considered last week, one of the things that comes as a result of Jesus' coming to this world is hope. And it is an absolute certain hope. It's not a blind optimism. It's not a wishful thinking kind of hope. It is a sure and steadfast hope that is an anchor for our soul, the author of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament says. Prior to that, we talked about peace, and the Bible says that God gives us a peace that is his peace. He is called the God of peace, and his peace is a peace that surpasses our understanding. It's not something that we can explain with our words. It, it kind of, as Charles Spurgeon would say, it breaks the backs of words, which is a beautiful way to think about it, that there's no way to fully articulate it with our words, the peace that he brings, the rest that he gives. Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we desperately need peace and rest and hope. And this week we're continuing, we're going to talk about this theme of joy. And these are the, the major things that we talk about. Next week we're going to talk about love, so make sure you're here next week. But every single year, these are some of the things that we talk about this time of year. And I discovered something new this last week, that nine tons of ice crushed into fake snow is an ingredient to happiness and joy. So... <laughs> The kids had a blast. It was a lot of fun to see all of that. Those of you who've been around Cross Connection Church for any length of time or who've gotten to know me, you might have noticed that I am something of like a, an information junkie. I, for some reason, I can't help but constantly be trying to find new information or understand various things. I listen to way too many podcasts. My poor wife and kids, they know this. I you know, listen to or watch lectures and talks and teachings and sermons and uh, read all kinds of articles and you know, news things on the internet and books. This last year, I was going through the list of all the things that I've read this year, and I've read something in the neighborhood of about 55 books this year. So it's just, and, and the problem is, is when you're reading this much, you don't know where information comes from. So it's like, there's no point in ever trying to remember where you read it. I just remember reading it somewhere, but there's just too much information. And it's not, it's not just me. I think a lot of us are just constantly being overwhelmed by the amount of information that comes at us or to us in this information-rich society. We have these little devices that we carry with us, and these things are sending us notifications constantly. And it's not always like news stories or global events or even local events. It's things that are happening in your friend's life or your neighbor's life, things that are coming to you about the, the crazy things that are happening on the next door app. Don't get on that thing. It's just the gossip app. And, you know... All the, it is. If you've ever looked at it, that's really what it is. You get to gossip about your neighbors. It's not good. That's actually forbidden in the scriptures, so don't do that. Um, but, but we live in this information age, and because we have so much information coming at us, and, and sometimes not things that we're even seeking out, it's just coming at us so much, that we fall into this pattern where we have to, in a sense, kind of triage or arbitrage the information. We have to try and just quickly go through it and figure out, is this something I need to know, want to know? Is it helpful? Is it useful? Is it not? And much of the information that comes at us is really not useful or helpful. So it kind of just goes into the, you know, the dustbin of our minds and kind of falls away. But in that environment that we are in, one of the challenges with that is that 
because there's so much coming at us constantly, we're not always sure whether or not what we're looking at is something we need to actually think about or look at. And this can become a real danger, especially as it is my conviction that this book that hopefully you have, if you don't, you can have one. We have them free in the back of the room. But probably most of you have a Bible or two or three or 20. And if you have developed a pattern, as many have in our church, as I have, of, of spending time in the scriptures, hopefully on a weekly basis, maybe on a daily basis, one of the challenges when we are bombarded by information is we can do the same thing with this that we do with the news or with social media, where it's like we just quickly skim or glance over it. Especially if you come to a passage, it's like, oh, I've read this before. And there are many passages in the Bible that's like, well, I've read this a dozen times. I've taught through it three or four times. Ah, you know, you, know, you don't pay attention to what's there. And the danger in just kind of quickly going through information is we can fall into that same thing with the living word of God. It's my conviction, and this is what the scriptures say, that this is God's revealed truth to us to give us understanding about his nature and his will and our purpose in his nature and in his will. So this is directly from him. It's living and powerful, and God wants to use this in our lives. But we can fall into that pattern where we just quickly go through it and don't really spend time thinking about it. And so all that to say, I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to a passage of scripture that's an important passage of scripture for the discussion of joy. It's in the Psalms. So if you turn to about the middle of your Bible, you'll probably find this big book of the Psalms. There's 150 of them, but go to Psalm 16. This was written 3,000 years ago, and it was written by um, David, King David of Israel. And in Psalm, 63, or Psalm 16, Beginning at verse 7, we have some important words that I, I want you to see as I read through them and, and really consider them. Because like I said, it is easy for us to fall into the dangerous pattern of just very quickly skimming over things and not really contemplating what is being said here. But there are some important words here about an important topic that even just a few minutes ago before I came up here, one of my friends here at the church was sharing, I think that this topic of joy is something that a lot of people need to hear right now as he was interacting and praying with some people before the service. But Psalm 16, look at verse 7. King David says this, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Now note this, verse 9. Therefore, because of this, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. There's joy and gladness right there. My flesh also rests in hope. So we talked last week and the week before about peace and hope. Right there are those themes of rest or peace and hope. So David says, I have peace and I have hope. I have rest and I am glad and rejoicing. Why? Verse 10. For, he's praying to God here, you will not leave my soul in Sheol. Now that word Sheol is a Hebrew word that means the grave. You're not going to leave my soul in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. I'm not going to decompose and rot in the ground. So this is David's hope. He says, I have hope and I have rest or peace and I have joy and gladness when I think about death. That doesn't seem to go together. We don't like to think about death. And death is one of those things that we do as much as we can to distance ourselves from, especially in modern 21st century Western culture. We try to hide the realities of death as far from us as we can. And 
in nursing, skilled nursing facilities, in nursing homes or in hospitals, we don't like to be confronted with it. And in, in many ways, we do a pretty good job of distancing ourselves from death until we're confronted with it in a big way, whether it's through the news, it's something that's happening somewhere else, and we see it and we are grieved by it and we're upset by it, as you probably have been when you saw all the news coming out of Israel or you see the things that have been happening in Ukraine for the last two years. These things upset us, rightly, because we don't like death. But death is a very real part of life. I know, you know, you come to church on a Sunday approaching Christmas and you think, well, hopefully the pastor's not going to talk about death, and here I am talking about death. <laughs> and, and as I've shared before, many times the statistics on death are discouraging and they're, they're pretty tragic. Ten out of ten people die. <laughs> we don't like to hear that, but it is the reality. And like I said, we try to distance ourselves from it because we don't want to think about it, but then we're affected by it because we see it in the news, but then it comes close to home because a friend, family member, loved one, is ill and dies. And then we have to go, or get to go, however you want to look at it, to a memorial service and to a funeral. I've done a lot of those over the years of being a pastor, dozens and dozens of memorial services. I've also done dozens and dozens of weddings, and I've noticed that people are happier at weddings than funerals. <laughs> oh, well, Captain Obvious, right? It's like, you don't have to look very far to see that. And I've also noticed that typically weddings are much more well attended than funerals because we don't want to be confronted with the reality of death. But as life goes on and the, the longer you live, you see more funerals than weddings. And when you ask people, you survey people, what are the greatest things that you fear? Death is normally number one or number two in the list. It, it oftentimes is either death or public speaking. I think it was Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian who observed many years ago because death and public speaking were at the top of the list of things that people are afraid of, that many people would rather be the person in the coffin than the person doing the eulogy. So we don't, we don't like death because it weighs upon us. And if you think about it, anything that you're worried about and anxious about is probably something that you and your mind have contemplated to the point that this is going to be my undoing or the death of somebody I love. Really, most of our anxieties go back to that. It's like, you know, this is going to kill me. And that's why I'm anxious about it. That's why I'm worried about it. So it takes away your, your peace and it takes away your hope. And there's no possible way to have joy when you're thinking about these things. And yet David, 3,000 years ago, he says, I have hope and I have rest and I have gladness and rejoicing when I think about death. Why? Because he says, you will not leave my soul in the grave, nor will you allow me to see corruption. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. I have shared that passage of scripture dozens and dozens of times at memorials and funeral services for the last 20 plus years. David says, I have joy and rejoicing and hope, the themes of this time of year, Advent, because I know you're not gonna leave my soul in the grave to see corruption. I know you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. I love this passage of scripture. He had peace because he had a certainty. He knew he would die. We all have a certainty of that, although we don't like to think about it. But that is the reality. I know someone will probably send me an email. Don't, because I know you want to. But when I say 10 out of 10 people die, you'll send me an email and say, well, what about Elijah and Enoch? And what about the people who don't die and are raptured? Okay, fine. But the odds are pretty high. Pretty high. 
So, so that's the reality. And it's distressing for us to think about. And even now you're thinking, why did I come here this morning? Like, how can I get out of here? I don't want to hear about death. <laughs> but all of this to lead us into this discussion of, of joy. David says, I have hope and I have rest and I have joy because I know that you're not going to allow me to decompose in the grave. You're going to show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand pleasures for ever. No, that evermore. That is a hope-filled and peace-producing concept, what he talks about right there. And when you join those words to the words spoken by a descendant of David, Jesus, a thousand years after David, that Jesus spoke to his followers the night before he would be crucified. And he's preparing them. He has foreknowledge about what's about to come, and he's preparing for them for this. He's been telling them for weeks, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of the chief priests, and I'm going to be crucified. To the point that one of his disciples, Peter, actually gets in his face and rebukes him and says, that's not going to happen. In fact, at another point when he's talking about this, you know, he's got a couple of disciples that show them, like, we got swords, we're going to take care of this. They didn't do a very good job. We'll get to that at Easter. <laughs> but, so, he's preparing them for his death. And I'm sure you could imagine, if you were there with his disciples at that moment, you would be, like, bothered by this. They were bothered by it. They're severely distressed by it. And in the midst of that, in John chapter 14, it records his words of encouragement to them. As he's preparing them for his death, Hours before he's going to be arrested, tried, condemned, and executed. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Don't be in turmoil over this. Don't be upset about this. Don't be troubled. You believe in God. You believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Were it not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. And he encourages his disciples. Amen. You can clap. That's a good news. He encourages his disciples, you know the way. You know where I'm going, you know the way. And one of his disciples, I like this guy, his name's Thomas, he objects. He's like, hold on a second. We have no clue where you're going and how to get there. <laughs> the God positioning system, that's right. So Jesus says, there, the words that are accounted among some of his most famous sayings, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. David said, a thousand years before that, I have joy, I have peace, I have hope, because I'm not going to see corruption, because you, God, will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. You will show me the path of life. And Jesus says, I am the way to life, to the Father. In his presence is fullness of joy, at his right hand, pleasures forevermore. Here's these themes that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. Hope, peace, joy. And in this passage, there is the promise of the hope of fullness of joy forevermore. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand, pleasures forevermore. So on this third Sunday of Advent 2023, I want to ask you two questions. First, what would fullness of joy look like? Because that concept, fullness of joy, even just the idea of it, there's something in us that has a hard time with it. Because we've all been happy at some point or another. I hope that you're experiencing happiness now. Maybe you're not. Maybe you remember a time where you were happy and now you're not happy and you wish that you could get back to being happy, but there's something in you that you know that, well, 
even the greatest happiness that I've experienced, you know, it's still temporary. And so the idea of fullness of joy, there's just something in us that's like, I'm not really sure that that's possible, but the scriptures talk about fullness of joy. And so what would fullness of joy look like? That's the first question. What, what might it look like? Now, there are certainly people who think, and our culture tells us that fullness of joy is going to be found if you just got a certain level of net worth. Like, like put two or three commas on it, and you're like, yeah, that would be happiness. And yet, we certainly have heard the testimonies. I don't know that anybody here has two or three commas to your net worth. If you do, God bless you. That's great. Um, but you probably don't. But we've heard from people who do. And what do they say? That it didn't bring happiness. In fact, it brings all kinds of other troubles. And we certainly see the people who have won or come into big wealth, money through lottery or whatever it may be, and how those things so frequently not help their life at all, but destroy their life. And so maybe it's not so much in that which our culture tells us it's going to be found in. And our culture has various things that it says, this is what's going to bring you happy, whether it's going to be possessions and wealth, or it's going to be pleasure and experiences, whatever it is. All of those things end up being temporary. But we're in a culture that is founded upon the concept of the pursuit of what? Happiness. And so you look at United States of America in 2023 going into 2024, you have all these different people that are, it's kind of like a choose your own adventure story, trying to figure out what's going to make you happy. And everybody's going in all these different directions trying to figure it out. And, and the amazing thing is if you would go back and read the book of Ecclesiastes, you'd find that a guy tried this 3,000 years ago. His name was Solomon. And his conclusion was, emptiness, emptiness, all is emptiness. I tried it. That's what he says. That's what the entire book is about. It's a research study in existentialism from 3,000 years ago before the word existentialism was even a thing. And he says it didn't, it didn't help. It didn't fix things. So what would fullness of joy look like? And I've thought about this quite a bit, and I have some, some concepts, some ideas that I think it could be connected to. I'll throw some out here. I think that fullness of joy would be connected to being close to and united with those who you love. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? Because we realize that death is a very real part of life and there will come a point that those that we love either die before us or we die before them. But fullness of joy would be connectedness united to those that we love. Fullness of joy would have something to do with kind of a safety and security where there's no concern or care or worry about provision, that you're fully taken care of and protected. It, it would be the freedom from guilt and shame I know more than a few people, and I've even had some recent conversations with people who the thing that is keeping them from experiencing joy in their life is that even when they start to experience some, some feeling or sense of joy, there is the reminder of all the failures that they've experienced. The, the shame and the guilt comes in. So I think that fullness of joy would be the removal of guilt and shame. It would be being free from worry and anxiety. I'm sure that we could come up with all kinds of other things that would be kind of put in there of what would fullness of joy look like? But these things are at least on the list. Fullness of joy is the fullness of connectedness and relationship. Fullness of joy is the fullness of rest, security, and provision. Fullness of joy would be the fullness of completeness of salvation and total forgiveness. No more, um, no more guilt or shame. Fullness of joy is the fullness of peace and hope. Second question. How many of you would like to have that kind of joy? I don't know why all of you didn't raise your hand, but okay. I mean, I hate to say it, but you'd have to be like a complete fool or you're just not listening if you don't want your joy to be full. 
We all want our joy to be full. But it might be that you didn't raise your hand because you think that's just not possible. Like it's just vanity for me to even raise my hand because it's a pipe dream to hope that it would even come because relationships, even the greatest relationships, even if they continue through a lifetime, they're still temporary because life ends. And the idea of total provision being taken care of is like nobody really experiences that. So it's just not possible is the thought that people have. But I want to suggest to you this morning, point number one, if you're taking notes, Christ's arrival makes fullness of joy accessible. Christ's arrival makes fullness of joy accessible. How do I know that? Well, I can only base that upon what I find in the scriptures, in the revealed truth of scripture. David, 3,000 years ago, said, in your presence is fullness of joy. In God's presence is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. That's what the scriptures declare. And David had this hope 3,000 years ago that, God, you will show me the path into this life so that I can be in your presence where there is fullness of joy forevermore. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the path to the Father. So, so that's where I'm basing this on. Christ's arrival makes fullness of joy accessible. And when we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating his arrival, his advent. So we're also celebrating that fullness of joy is now accessible in Christ Jesus. And this is the prophetic hope of ancient prophets that we read of in the Bible. That was their prophetic hope. This was Isaiah's prophetic hope that produced two verses that you will probably see, and I've said this before, you'll probably see it on some Christmas cards this year, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That whole passage there in Isaiah. In fact, if you have your Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Right about the middle of your Bible, you'll be in the Psalms. Turn to the right, you're going to find Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 is where that passage comes from. But as you're turning there, let me give you some context. Isaiah wrote that during a really dark time for himself and his nation. He lived in Jerusalem. And at that time, 2,800 years ago, Jerusalem was under siege or about to be under siege by their own brothers. The nation of Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And in Isaiah's day, when he was in Jerusalem, their brothers in the northern kingdom of Israel had made an alliance with the nation of Syria, all the same names. They'd made an alliance with the Syrians to come and destroy their brothers in the south, to destroy Jerusalem. And Isaiah was living in the city of Jerusalem at that time. And there was a king in Jerusalem, in Judah. His name was Ahaz. And he was like an imbecilic leader. I know we know nothing about that, but he was an imbecilic leader. And he was leading the people in the wrong direction. And the nation was reaping the consequences of him leading the nation in the wrong direction. And Isaiah went to him and called him to repent and turn, but he, he wouldn't do it. And he said, if you will repent and turn, God will protect you. And he wouldn't believe it. And God gives him a promise. I will protect you. And the promise is actually found in the passage where we get this other very famous Christmas verse in Isaiah seven fourteen: Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Has anybody ever heard that verse, read that verse in a Christmas card? That came as a promise to Ahaz. If you will repent, God will protect you. Then Isaiah 9 comes, and it's at this very dark period of time, and Isaiah prophesies of a coming future where joy and hope are going to come. He says it like this, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness, they will see a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. So he says, in this darkness, he says, a great light is going to come. 
And what will this great light bring to those who are in darkness? Verse 3, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So Isaiah says, in the midst of the context of great darkness, you who are in darkness, a great light is going to come. And this great light is going to bring great joy. And Isaiah wants to try to explain what he means by great joy. Because sometimes words just don't do justice to the idea. So he says, this light that's going to come is going to bring great joy. And it's the kind of joy that you have when you bring in the harvest. Now, I'm assuming that not too many of you here this morning are farmers. So you may not know that kind of joy so much. So let's put it in 2023 terms. It's the kind of joy that you would experience if tomorrow... Your boss calls you into the office and says, you know what, you've done a really good job this year. You've had a great year, and we're going to give you a bonus. And it's not like the jelly of the month kind of bonus. It's like a real bonus. And they give you a check, and it's like, I don't know, say quarter million dollars, $250,000. Oh, yeah, ooh, that would be good, huh? That got your attention. Two hundred fifty grand. Like, do you think maybe you might call your spouse right after that meeting. <laughs> Maybe you might even like post a couple like joyful emojis on like Instagram or something after. You'd like, mind blown. Good day, hashtag. Like you, you'd be happy about that one. He says it's that kind of joy. The joy when you bring in the harvest. Or as when men divide the spoil. Who divides the spoil? To the blank goes the spoil. To the you know that one, to the victor. So the victor in the war is the one who won the war, and they're still alive. That's a joyful situation. You thought you'd die, but you didn't die. You're still alive, and now you get to take in the spoils of war. It's that kind of joy. So he says, this is the kind of joy. And he gives a couple examples that the Jewish people during that time would understand. He gives the example of the war between Midian and the Jewish people. We'll talk about that in the book of Judges next year. He goes, it's this kind of joy. So what is he saying? There's a dark shroud over people. They're under the shadow of death. The whole world is because of sin. And he says, but there's a light coming that's going to bring great joy. And he's speaking kind of poetically, and it's a little ambiguous at the moment when he's saying there's going to be a light coming. It's going to bring great joy, like really big joy, the joy of the harvest, the joy of the spoils of war. It's going to bring that kind of great joy. And then he tells us, like, where is this joy coming from? Well, verse that's where verse 6 comes in. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The people were under darkness, the shadow of death, but a light is coming that's going to bring great joy. And what is that light? It's not a thing. It's not an it. It's a person. Unto us a child is born, a son is given, the prince of peace, the king of kings, the father. Jesus is going to come. He's the fulfillment of that. This is seven, eight hundred years before Jesus would come. But what Isaiah says, he has this prophetic hope of a coming one that's going to bring great joy. That's what he's looking forward to. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, when he's born, there was an angelic annunciation. We call it the annunciation passage. The angels came and spoke to a group of shepherds who were tending their fields. I mean, you guys have heard that Christmas story. We played it at the Charlie Brown Christmas the other day. And what 
What did the angel say? Luke chapter 2. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Isaiah has this prophetic hope of the coming one who will come to people who are in darkness, under the shadow of death, and bring light and joy, great joy. And on the day that Jesus was born, the angels announced to the shepherds, the one who brings great joy to all people has been born. And why is he able to bring this great joy? Well, because Isaiah 7.14 says he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And God, it is core to his very nature. He is it's not just that he has joy, he is joy. Just like John, the first, the, uh, first John letter in the New Testament says, God is love. There are other things that you could fill in the blank with love there. You could say, God is joy. It would still be true. He is the embodiment of joy. Point number two, Jesus is fullness of joy embodied. Because he has the very nature of God. And so when you come into his presence and you receive Christ into your life, which is what the core or focus of the gospel is, then you have the presence of the fullness of joy coming into your life and you have the opportunity to begin to experience this kind of fullness of joy. This is why Jesus would say to his disciples who were in the midst of troubling circumstances, because I'm going to... We've got to recognize that this fullness of joy does not mean that there will never be troubling circumstances. But even in the midst of troubling circumstances, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Were it not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you so that I might receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And in his presence is fullness of what? Joy. That's the ultimate promise that he gives to us. And ultimately, we see that the rest of the story of the Bible is you get to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 21, you discover that eventually he is going to bring the fullness of his kingdom to this world. And when he does, there will be no more sorrow and there will be no more death and there will be no more crying and there will no, be no more pain. Why? Because in his presence is fullness of joy. And that is the expectation. That is the hope that the Christian has. And it is not a wishful thinking hope. It is not a blind, optimistic kind of hope. It is an absolute certainty that God will bring it to pass. And that kind of hope is an anchor for our soul, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And that gives us a peace that surpasses understanding. In whatever situation that we go to, we can still be at rest. And we can't explain why we're at rest, but we have this rest from God because he has given us this joy. But the, the obvious question is, okay, that sounds really good, Pastor, that in the future we're going to be with God in his presence and there will be fullness of joy, but what about now? That should be the obvious question. What about today? Because if only, if in this life we only have hope of ultimate joy in heaven, then it seems like, well, what about today? Isn't there something more for right now? Is hope only something that we have to look forward to in heaven? Joy only something that we are hoping for in the next life? I don't think it is. I think that we can begin to experience this kind of joy now. Not, not fully, maybe, but we can begin to experience it. Point number three, if you're taking notes. By faith in Christ, we receive joy that is increasing unto abundance for eternity. 
We receive a joy in Christ that is increasing unto abundance for eternity. While I was contemplating this a couple years ago, I, I wish I had written down where I found it, but I came across a, a sermon that was preached by a different pastor, and he, he said this on this passage. One of the greatest transformations I experienced upon becoming a Christian is the realization of genuine peace and joy even when the circumstances around me swirl out of control. Who doesn't want that kind of joy? I think everybody wants that kind of joy. And how can we lay hold of and experience this kind of joy? How do we get this kind of joy that is increasing unto abundance for eternity? Well, the answer, just like last week when we talked about peace and hope the previous week, it, it's amazing how Romans chapter 5 comes into play with this. Because Romans chapter 5 verse 1, I read it last week, I read it the week before. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith... As we are justified, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. There's those three again. Hope, peace, and joy. And not only that, but we also glory or rejoice in tribulations. How do you joy or have joy in tribulation? Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. All of the themes of Advent are there. Hope, love, joy, peace. All of them right here in this passage. So the first answer to the question, can we have this now? Well, the first answer is we access this joy that is increasing unto abundance for eternity by receiving the gracious gift of God in Christ Jesus that gives us the saving, forgiving grace of God where we no longer stand in guilt and shame before a holy God. That is dealt with. You cannot have fullness of joy if you are carrying around grief and, and guilt and shame. And Jesus deals with that through his forgiveness. And then he makes it possible for us to be reconciled back to God. We now have a connection with God and a new connection that he builds with one another. So we lay hold of this initially through the saving power of the gospel. But how do we begin to experience it now? Jesus gives us the answer in the gospel of John. So you have your Bible? Open to the New Testament. Last third of your Bible begins with the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 15 which is right after Jesus has just encouraged his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In John 14, it's the same conversation. It's the same circumstances. Jesus is facing his crucifixion the next day. He's talking with his disciples. And he says this, John 15, verse 1. Look at this. I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You already are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, Jesus says. He's the vine, you're the branches. He says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So stay connected, abiding in Christ. Verse five, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do what? Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withers, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples." 
As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. So we have abide in him, abide in his word, abide in his love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's, what we, that's how we can tell you're doing these things. If you're doing what Jesus' word says, if you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now here's the key, verse 11. These things I've spoken to you. What things? What we just read. Abide in Jesus, abide in his word, abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my, what's that word? My joy may remain in you and your joy may be full. You say, I want to experience fullness of joy. I do too. How do I experience fullness of joy? Well, first, we receive Christ by the gospel, Romans 5, and then we begin to experience this joy that is increasing unto abundance and never stops for eternity by doing what? Well, Jesus just said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and your joy might be full. Point number four. The fruit of fullness of joy in my life is the result of abiding in Christ. When we read that word fruit in John 15, if you've been around the Bible for any length of time, it might cause you to recall another passage of Scripture later in the New Testament in Galatians 5 where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Now, what is the fruit of the Spirit? It is the evidence that God's Spirit produces in you as He is in your life. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Well, love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, these goodness, these things are the fruit of the Spirit. One of them is joy. And the fruit of the fullness of joy in my life is a result of abiding in Christ and His Word and His Spirit and His life pervading my life. We have a sure and steadfast hope in Christ Jesus by the saving power of Jesus Christ. We have a sure and steadfast peace from God that surpasses understanding the peace of God in our lives by the same saving power. And we can experience increasing joy unto abundance for eternity by the gospel and through abiding in Christ. How do we abide in Christ? Well, we abide in his word. That's what he says here. Abide in me, abide in my word, and we abide in his word by his word becoming a part of our lives as we we learn it and we read it and we memorize it and we meditate upon it and we share it with other people and then we abide in his love. How do we abide in his love? By doing what his word teaches is what he says in this passage. And what does that look like? By sharing with others and praying for others and caring for others and doing unto others as we would have them do unto us, doing what the scripture teaches. And as we begin to do these things, then we begin to experience fullness of joy. The experience of increasing joy is ours as we abide in Christ, as the scriptures say. Now, that does not mean that you'll never have another difficult day, because you will. But here's the amazing thing. Even in the midst of difficulty, there's still joy. We see that throughout the scriptures. I think of Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. He says, exceedingly joyful in our tribulation. Wait, what? What? Paul says, I was exceedingly joyful in tribulation. Who, who is exceedingly joyful in tribulation and trouble? Those things don't seem to go together. And yet he says, I was exceedingly joyful in tribulation. In the very next chapter, 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he talks about the Christians who were in the city of Philippi who were experiencing a time of great affliction. And it says, in a great trial of, of affliction, they experienced an abundance of joy. How does a great trial of affliction go together with abundance and joy? It doesn't in this world. At this moment in our culture, we are seeing what is being referred to by many people as a crisis of meaning. It's all around us. As a result, we have seen, especially in the last 10 to 20 years, we have seen, been, seen increasing deaths of despair. What are deaths of despair? Oftentimes, they are deaths that are brought about by an, an opioid overdose because a person is despairing because of chronic pain, mentally, physically, emotionally, whatever it may be, and they've tried to deaden it and they've gone too far. And I, I, don't, I know pretty much everybody in this church knows somebody who died because of an opioid <laughs> overdose. I do. I certainly know of probably four or five people. Why? Deaths of despair. In arguably one of the most abundance-rich nations in the world. Why is that? Because we're having a crisis of meaning. Why? Because we have bought the lie that has been sold to us for a very long time that joy is going to be found in X, fill in the blank. Whatever it is around us, and those things don't satisfy or bring joy. There's just a compounding of meaninglessness. Only in Christ Jesus can you have great joy in trial and affliction. James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How is that even possible? Only by the joy that is found in Christ. Joy is the result of faith in God. It is the byproduct of salvation. It is the fruit of abiding in Christ. And it is available in Christ Jesus as we abide in him. Let me try to wrap this up really quickly. Everybody that you know is deeply desiring peace, hope, and joy. All of the people you work with, go to school with, live next door to, or in your family, you see it, your kids, you know, soccer game, baseball game, volleyball game, whatever it is, all around town, everybody that you bump into at Vaughn's or at Albertson's or Home Depot or at the gas pump, all of those people are deeply desirous of peace and hope and joy. If you ask them, would you like to have fullness of joy? They're going to say, yeah, I think I would. Now, they're not sure what that is going to be found in. They're trying to pursue something that they think is going to make them happy. But like the woman at the well, they'll find that that's not satisfying. Everybody is seeking for this. We all desire deeply peace and hope and joy. I would say that it is existentially necessary. What's that mean? It means that you cannot have psychological or physical wholeness. You can't have physical, psychological well-being without hope and peace and joy. When you lose hope or peace or joy, you have a meaning crisis. You cannot live without these things. Life becomes meaningless, not worth living when you are lacking hope or peace or joy and love as we'll talk about next week. So if everybody wants fullness of joy, a hope that is sure and steadfast like an anchor for our souls and peace that surpasses understanding, it's safe to assume that you want that as well. I won't ask you to raise your hand because... Either you're not listening and you won't raise your hand or you're too afraid to raise your hand because somebody else might not raise their hand and then you'd be embarrassed because you raised your hand and they didn't raise your hand, so I won't ask you to do that. But I, I just know, I already know you want it. Deeply want it. 
And I want to encourage you and challenge you to give yourself completely and wholly over to the pursuit of peace and hope and joy. I want you in 2024 to make it your total aim to pursue after your peace and hope and joy. And you may say, well, that sounds really selfish. No, I think it's actually right. Because in seeking for and pursuing peace and hope and joy, who will you be pursuing? There's only one possible thing that you can answer that with. It's only ultimately found in Christ. Now, if you pursue for it in something else, you will find yourself without peace, hope, and joy. I guarantee it. And I've had more than, more than a number of conversations with people who pursued those things for 20, 30, 40 years of their life and just found themselves devastated. And finally, they come to find it in Christ. And they always say the same thing to me. I wish I would have done this sooner. Now, either these words are true or they're not. And if they're not true, there's no point for us to spend any time with this. But if they are true, then what we're told here is that these things, peace and hope and joy and love, are found only in Christ Jesus. And you should pursue those things because they're only ultimately found in Christ. He is the fullness of God in bodily form, Colossians chapter 1 says. So if you're pursuing for those things, you will only ultimately find them in Jesus. And as you begin to apprehend them and they become a part of your life, here's the awesome thing. They will overflow to the point that other people around you will be jealous. They'll say, I want that. I want you to have the ministry of jealousy. Paul talked about this in the book of Romans. He said he wanted to stir up his Jewish brothers with jealousy. I like that. Like the minute, don't you want other people like, I wish I had what they had. Yeah, you do. You want that. But here's what you should have it in. Joy and peace and hope and love. I want your testimony, the testimony of Cross Connection Church, to be that everybody who knows you're like, you know, that person has something I don't have. And I can't quite put it my, my finger on it, but they're... They seem to have peace when everybody else is like freaking out. And listen, next year is going to be a freak out year for a lot of people. I'm just going to give two names, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. It's going to cause people to go absolutely aggro nuts. I hope it won't do that to you. It will if you start feeding yourself. If you're abiding in Fox News or MSNBC, you're totally sunk. If you're abiding in that, you're going to know. You know how you're going to know? You're going to have anxiety and anger. So every time I see like a really anxious, angry person, I just go, eh. <laughs> They've been watching too much news. You could, real simple test. If you're filled with anxiety, anger, like just on edge, you're abiding in social media and the corporate news media. It's true. Try it out. Test it. Actually, don't. Don't do that. <laughs> Try this out instead. Abide in this. Amen. Paul said to the church at Colossae, in Colossians 3, if you've been raised with Christ, what that means is if you're a Christian, if you have trusted in Christ, if you've been raised with Christ, seek those things that are above Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. If you want to experience joy that is increasing unto abundance for eternity, 
It is only found in Jesus Christ. And Christmas is all about these concepts of hope and peace and joy. And I know there's a lot of skepticism in your heart. Even if you've been a Christian for a long time, you go, I just don't think it's possible because, you know, I've had a really bad year or a bad five years. And I've had enough conversations with people in this room at this moment that that's been your experience. It's been a really bad decade, some people tell me. And so you're skeptical. I just don't, I don't think it's even possible. I hope that I'm going to have it in heaven, but I just, I've given up on it here. Well, try it out. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You might be surprised. And, and I can tell you with certainty. Listen, I have bad days. And I can be cranky. Don't ask my wife. She'll have too many stories to tell. And, you know, I, I have those things. But I, what I have seen in my life is an increasing joy over time. Because I know that ultimately it's found in Christ and in his word. And as I am spending time, I, I know for a fact, every time that I'm anxious or upset about something, I, I know I'm lacking in spending time with God devotionally in prayer and in his word. And when I do those things and order my life around those kind of spiritual practices and habits, I experience joy and peace and hope. And I'm kinder to people. And God desires that that fruit would be abundant in my life. So God, prune away whatever is not producing that kind of fruit. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Father God, I do pray as we're standing here before you today that you would come and remove, just as John 15 said, that you prune away any branch in you that does not bear fruit. If there's any branch in my life that is not bearing the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, if there's anything not producing those things in my life, would you cut it away? And that's even a little bit of a frightening prayer to pray because who knows what the thing will look like after you cut it away. But God, my desire for my life, for lives, my brothers and sisters here is that we would bear much fruit. That's your desire. And so God, do whatever you need to do to make us a fruitful church, fruitful in these kind of things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Make that abound in our lives to your glory for we ask it in Jesus name and all those that agreed said